We've all been there, in the middle of a job, everything going smoothly, until boom, you're missing a part. United Refrigeration is your one-stop shop for all your refrigeration needs. Use your computer or smartphone to go to www.uri.com at any time of day or night to check stock on your favorite brands, such as Copeland, Sporlin, Carlisle Compressors, Danfoss, Emerson CPC Boards and Sensors, Carell, Hussman Parts, and Ketotherm. United Refrigeration Inc. is home to these brands and many more. Looking for information on refrigerant conversions or refrigerant banking? Quick access links on the homepage can get you to the information you need. All approved accounts are able to see live to the minute inventory and pricing. Product not in stock at your local branch? No problem. Use the nearby stock feature to find a local branch that does have what you need. Are you looking for a branch address, phone number, or after hours number? That's all available as well. Just click on the branch locator and search for your local branch. Have a model number and looking for a replacement part? www.uri.com forward slash ARP has a vast list of quick pick replacement parts. Just search for the model number of the equipment you're working on and click the replacement parts tab. If you don't have an account, click the register button and we'll have you online in no time. With more than 400 locations in North America, each United Refrigeration branch is fully stocked for immediate pickup. Our branch employees have in-depth technical knowledge so we can help you get what you need when you need it. Visit your local store or www.uri.com forward slash ARP today. United Refrigeration Inc. has all your solutions down cold. John, how can you always have the right TV for the right application without carrying hundreds of valves on your truck? You can carry the hundreds of valves on a trailer behind your truck. That's too funny. That would work, but how are you going to do that? Maybe there's an easier way. You can use Sporlin's interchangeable cartridge style Type-Q and Type-BQ uh, TEVs. Type-Q is a conventional design and Type-BQ is a balanced port TEV. Well, come on, I need easy. How easy is it? Uh, easy is one, two, three. And it serves thousands of unique applications. So what's the process? How do I put this together? First, you select the thermostatic element assembly. Then you select the body that you need. Then you select the right size cartridge for the application to get the proper capacity TEV for your application. And then I guess it should also be said you want to actually assemble those to a single valve. That'd probably be a good idea. Indeed. These easy to select and assemble valves mean you're always carrying the right valve for the right job then. If folks want to learn more, what do they do? Uh, you can go to sporland.com and find more information on the Type Q and BQ thermostatic expansion valves. I guess that's Jim and John for Sporland signing off. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Advanced Refrigeration Podcast. You're here with your host, Brett Wetzel and Kevin Compass. How are we doing this week, man? Ugh. Everything going good? Yeah. Why yeah. is it never going good? Ever? If it was going good, things would be bad around the corner. No, uh, we're doing these island case changeouts, and they are not going well. Why so? Because none of them fit in the stores. None of what? Wait, none of what? Huh? None of the cases want to fit in the stores. They like are physically massive. Oh, like like wide islands? Is that what you're talking about? 
they're like the they're called isla islands like they're like four-sided pre-assembled islands yeah they are like the size of a boat and yeah there's like no way to get them in the, in the stores they were supposed to come like the the, the first batch of them came in like pieces mm -hmm. Snake. these ones came together and they're not made to come apart oh no it is a nightmare we had some uh, something similar we were up in massachusetts doing doing a remodel and i think we talked about it where, where we had to we had to use a rollback because they came on a box truck but the 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 physical they didn't have like a physical dock they did but it was one of those ones that has the mechanic mechanical ramp that has to go up so you're not going to fit a huge ass case like that on there and basically we had to use the the box truck to transport it onto a rollback and then the rollback would actually put it on the ground and then we had to open up the sliding glass doors in the front of the building in order to get this freaking monstrosity on because it was so damn wide one of the stores we had to take the glass out of the front of the store and bring it through a window what yeah like, like half the stores, the, the back rooms, there's, there's not enough room to turn the case. Oh, no. You can't make it through the back room. Oh, no. Like, and you can't put it on the side because it's all, got, it's, it's all glass in the front. Wonderful. Oh, yeah, that, that, was, that was my day. And then it's like some of these, some of these don't have case drains, so we got to put in condensate pumps and, like, put in, like, PVC in the ceiling. And it's just like chaos and we're doing 80 of them so there's three going a day hmm. so between me and the other two startup guys we're bouncing it out of these and plus having to help fit them up or do them or pump stuff down or this has been a nightmare nation nationwide chain no it's chicago chain well kind of but it's a chicago chain okay. uh, yeah it's just yeah not 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 been a fun job so far, they, I, I wish the, the other manufacturer was supplying them that supplied them last year because they were much easier. Gotcha. Yeah. Eight, um, eight drains on an eight foot case. Wait, what? Yeah. There's eight drains on an eight. It's a, it's an eight foot island that we did today. Eight drains. Eight foot. Why is that? There's a, there's a drain every foot. There's a drain every four, there's a drain every four foot. There's, there's a drain on each end of the long side. There's, a, there's a drain on each end cap. There's two drains. Yes. Each four foot end cap has two drains. Kaiser? Hussman. Oh, okay. That kind of makes sense. And literally in order to do the drains, you got to use a street 90, but a street 90 inch and a quarter touches the case rail. So you got to beat the case rail out with a sledgehammer in order to get the, get the street 90 into it, into the T. Is it like, is a set of seven eighths street 90 or what? No, it's an inch and a quarter street 90. Oh my God. That's a lot of drain for a lot of, for a little bit of case. Yeah. They could have like degraded that a little. Yeah. I'm over there doing drains a day and I'm just like hating my life, like trying to pry a street 90, like sideways into, into a, into a T before the glue dries. Nice. Your hands are still all cut up. 
Yeah, look at look at look at him a slicer. Amazing. But other than that, let's let's dive on into it. Okay. Hey, tonight we're gonna to be talking about liquid liquid injection versus vapor injection. The differences and yeah. Let's uh you wanna start? You want me to start? What do you want me to do? Yeah, why don't you take it first? Sure. So liquid injection is exactly what it sounds like. You're injecting liquid in, into the, into the side of the compressor. Most compressor manufacturers will basically give you diagram of the of the compressor and where to actually do the liquid injection. So if you're dealing with like a Copeland 4D, or I'm sorry, 6D, there's usually two places that you have to inject. On a Copeland 4D, there's usually only like one place you have to inject. This is usually controlled by either an electronic control could be your demand cooling module Bitzer has their own form of demand cooling module that they use let's see what else we have we also have the y1037 valve which is the the liquid injection valve that looks like an expansion valve typically it's a it's an f style expansion valve and it has a bulb on the top and that bulb is supposed to go on the discharge line. And those things are rated for a certain temperature, whether it be 190 degrees, 210 degrees, 230 degrees. And those valves are sized per the compressor. So even when you have a, like a demand cooling module, you know, you'll have, oh, I'm losing it now. Demand cooling module, you'll have, there's two different types of valves for, for the Copelands. You have ones that go on the 2Ds and the 3Ds, and then you have another one that goes on the 4, 6, and 8Ds. So you know, that valve encompasses all, all three of those compressors. With the Y1037 valve, those, those valves are typically sized off of a couple different factors. You have the horsepower of the compressor, you have the saturated suction that it's supposed to be running at, and then you also have the suction line temperature coming back to the suction, to the compressor. Based off of those numbers, it'll tell you exactly what valve that it wants to have. Most of the time, manufacturers will size these valves for a 35 degree superheated suction. So if you're dealing with, let's just say minus 20 saturated, they're expecting that suction coming back when they design that valve to be running at like plus 15. If you do run outside of those parameters, higher than what the suction is supposed to be, that valve will not be big enough and not will not adequately cool that compressor. We also have vapor injection. Typically we see these on sub subcooled circuits, subcooled racks, the suction that comes off of the EPR that's holding that, that evaporator pressure regulator for that, for that brace plate heat exchanger. The outlet of that, the suction is typically going to the vapor injection port. Typically you'll see the temperature of that be X amount of degrees above the saturator that's supposed to be running. So if we're trying to maintain a, a 40, 40, I'm sorry, 50 degree subcooler temperature, typically we have to maintain 40 degrees to maintain that 50, which means if you set that for 10 degrees of subcooling, I'm sorry, superheat, 10 degrees of superheat you should basically get 50 degrees entering that, that compressor. You can tell the difference, at least on the Copelands, it's fairly easy. You'll see the hole where it's either going to have vapor injection or liquid injection. If you have liquid injection, that hole's going to be I think quarter inch or three eighths. If you have vapor injection, it'll be like a half or five, a five eighths inch entering that compressor, 
with the scrolls, you'll see the model number on the Copeland compressor. It'll say KVA instead of just KA. The V obviously stands for vapor. Go ahead. You want to take it off from there? Yeah. While you're bringing up that part, like I've seen guys screw up and accidentally get a liquid injection compressor. Mm -hmm. Supposed to be a vapor because the supply house gave them the wrong compressor. And if you look at them, there are some non-vapor injection compressors that are liquid injection that have a roller lock on there. So just because it has a roller lock fitting doesn't mean anything. So you need to verify it with the model number. Now, they, especially if it's a Copeland, super easy. I mean, just click on your Copeland mobile app, scan the, the, old, the old compressor, and look for compressor replacements and make sure that that compressor is a replacement. And if you're, you're questioning the new one and look and see what, what it is, if it's a vapor injected compressor, like Brad said, it has the V in there. Now you could have different types of vapor injected compressors, not just scrolls, screws and recips also could be vapor injected too. Like a Carlisle compound compressor, Bitzer has a compound compressor. Those are also vapor injected scrolls or vapor injected compressors. Now, the reason you have liquid injection and vapor injection there's two different there's a few reasons now when you use liquid injection nothing is free okay you're using btus you're using capacity of the compressor you have to it requires work in order to cool that compressor off your that cooling effect comes in somewhere so it adds to the kw of the compressor so it makes that compressor less efficient by you're injecting liquid in there. You're, you're taking up some of that capacity. So it's not free. So that's where, like back in the day, they only used liquid injection because that's all they had. Now in comes vapor injection. Now the nice thing about vapor injection is, is it cancels out. So say you have a subcooler and you want to run a subcooler on a rack and you're running that subcooler. Now that subcooler is a load. I mean, it, nothing's free. Yeah, you gain a little bit by subcooling the liquid down, but you still have to pay to refrigerate that liquid to, to cool it down. Now you bring in vapor injection. So we have to do two things. We have to cool the compressor. So we were going to inject liquid before, but now we're going to use vapor injection. Okay, so that load you're going to use to cool the compressor is going to also subcool liquid. So now you get this cancelization out. So now you just essentially subcooled for basically free for what you were going to use liquid injection for. So you, it cancels itself out. It's not like a, you're saving a bunch of energy, but you're not using more energy by using liquid injection. See, liquid injection is it's you're going you're just paying for nothing you're you're paying for just to cool the compressors now you're paying to cool the compressor and you're getting subcooling, which is going to make the rack larger everything more efficient make it run smoother it's going to allow your liquid temperatures to be a lot more stable you're gonna have more subcooling, better quality liquid you're going to do, get more net refrigeration effect out of your evaporators so that's where it becomes more efficient in that point because now you have that subcooler, but you didn't pay for it the other thing is the vapor injection also does increase the efficiency of a system up to up to like 20%. So 
So you could potentially get 20% more BTUs at a compressor when you're utilizing that, that, that vapor injection. In, in screws, in rotary screws, they refer to that as an economizer line. And basically the, the thought is that there's like a dead spot in there where there's no real compression going on. So by injecting that, that vapor into there helps, helps with that efficiency as well as the cooling effect on that compressor as well. Yeah. I mean, that, that it's, it's like a interstage, it's inter, it, not like an interstage pressure. It is interstage pressure. It is technically your interstage pressure and scrolls have it for vapor injection. Screws have it, compound compressors have it. Now that, that is essential for that interstage pressure to have that subcooler working. It derates that compressor a lot. Like a lot of guys won't pay attention to it. Like a lot of subcoolers won't be working. And that interstage pressure is all over the place because now your interstage pressure is only coming from your suction and discharge of that compressor. Whatever the, yeah, what is it? It's, there's a, there's a whole math problem for it to figure out what it is. I don't know off the top of my head. I always have to look in the Carlisle book. Oh, 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 oh and oh, you're, you're talking about figuring out your interstage pressure. Absolute, absolute. What is it? Absolute discharge pressure the, or times absolute suction pressure. And then you take the square root. Yeah. And that gives you your interstage pressure. So I, we've, I found this out physically because someone that I was with was trying to rebuild a vapor injection solenoid by not isolating compressor because they thought, Hey, if I get it down to about 10 PSI on the suction, I should have 10 PSI on that vapor injection line out of that compressor. That is a big negative red rider. When this person went to go rebuild that solenoid, they had like 50 or 60 or 70 pounds on there pushing against that solenoid. So yeah. So when you're having to rebuild that vapor injection, you do not have an isolation line before that. Isolate that old compressor, pump that thing completely down to atmosphere and then rebuild it. Cause otherwise you're not going to really have a real fun time. It is hard to keep a solenoid hat down when there's 50 pounds there. Oh, no, it, it wants to just blow right out of your hand. So I don't, I, I don't recommend it at all. Never. Yeah, Not that I've done it. I'm just saying I've seen I've, someone do it. But plenty of times, maybe not. I've also had them fly out and it's like that. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. I instantly regret this. I want to go home. I'm new. I don't know what to do. I'm like, oh, here comes the oil. Ah. It's always delayed like 10, 15 seconds too. Like they randomly, it's like, where was this? All of a sudden, yeah, there it is. But no, like it's, you, you want to be careful with that. But like, like I said, like that vapor injection with the subcooler, you, you get that cancelization out and then you make that compressor more efficient because now you're feeding that compressor Say if your subcooler set up for 50 degree liquid and you're running a 40 degree evaporator, okay, and you got 10 degrees of superheat, you're running a 50 degree interstage temperature into those compressors. And that's going to cool it off a lot more than what you're coming down your suction. That, that's why it's essential for it to be set up and working. Now, a big thing that guys miss is you do not want the subcooler cycling on temperature on liquid temperature, on anything that runs vapor injection. 
that subcooler needs to have 24 hours, seven days a week runtime. The only time that subcooler should shut off is if the rack shuts off. That is the number one thing I see guys mess up the most with, with vapor injection compressors, especially at the bullseye store. You'll, you'll, you'll pull up there and you look at the top of the compressors and they're like the paint's peeling off the top of them. Guarantee you the subcooler has not worked at some point or is, is down or was, is not functioning properly because that is your only form of cooling for those compressors with that high compression ratio. Correct. Also with the vapor injection, just to, to make you fully aware. Not only do you need that vapor injection to make sure that the paint doesn't bubble, but obviously it's going to keep your discharge line temperatures down. Also keep your, 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 your oil, not brown. It'll, it'll make sure that, that you're not adding so much damn heat to it, that you're, that you're just cooking the thing. Yeah. Good. The other thing you got to watch out for on vapor injection is floodback. Now this is, this is one that will screw guys up. And what I've been doing is I've been putting temp sensors on the vapor lines a lot. And that way I could, I could graph both because here's the problem. Guys will show up to a store. They'll have a compressor off on oil, one or two compressors off on oil. They'll graph the suction. They'll see zero floodback. Nothing's coming back in the suction. The suction looks good. No floodback. Okay. But it's coming down the vapor injection line, but it may not be frosting. That's the thing. It may be shoving so much liquid down there that it's not frosting and it goes right into the crank. If it's a, if it's a recip, it's going right in the crankcase. So it's not going into the, it's not going into the suction and getting boiled off that way. It's going directly into the crankcase. So go ahead, Brett. No, I've seen this happen a couple of times. So on the bullseye stores where basically you have the heat exchanger coming out, you have your EPR, and then basically it goes right to your vapor injection solenoids. They have vapor injection solenoids in there in case there's any liquid or whatever you know, in there. It doesn't migrate into a compressor that's in the off-site level and then it, then it starts up. I've seen where the solenoids are just old and not opening up all the way. And so if you'll check it, you'll check the pressure before and after the EPR, they'll be the same pressure, but it'll be elevated. It'll be like 60 or 75 degrees saturated instead of like the 35 or 45 that you're trying to maintain, right? And what I did was that when I forced the solenoid stem in, you actually saw the pressure start to come down. So that would be one reason that you potentially cause a whole bunch of liquid to go into those compressors. Another thing, which seems like I have probably been on the phone with, and this isn't a lie, probably at least 25 different people. They're like, I got this compound compressor, this Carlisle, and it keeps grenading all, all the high stages. Well, typically what happens is for all the ones that have the electronic expansion valves, Usually in the program, they'll have a fail safe. So if the temperature of the subcooler goes down too low, it'll shut down the liquid cylinder. Today's episode is sponsored by the RefRush Shield RDP series differential pressure monitors from Westermeyer Industries, now available for transcritical CO2 systems in addition to other common pressures and refrigerants. When the filter element of your coalescing oil separator is contaminated, it can hurt your system's performance and efficiency. But how do you know when it's time to replace that filter? Wait too long to replace and you could end up with a nasty filter blowout. But replacing too often can be a waste of time and money. The answer is installing a differential pressure monitor. The RDP series differential pressure monitors, including the new transcritical CO2 model, are available now from Westermeyer Industries. To find out more information, email sales at westermeyerin.com. That's W-E-S-T-E-R-M-E-Y-E-R-I-N-D-com.
which is on a regular mechanical expansion valve, that's perfectly freaking fine. But if you are not telling that controller that typically it's a Sporland superheat controller that you're physically shutting off the liquid line solenoid by applying the, the jumper to, I think it's like 27 and 28 terminals on that superheat controller, which basically puts the electronic expansion valve in a pump down function. If you do not do that and you shut off the liquid line solenoid, what does it see? It sees an elevation in suction line temperature and also sees a decrease in su suction pressure, which essentially give you a high superheat. So instead of that valve clamping down because the system is now off, now that valve is going to open up 100% because the thing to the superheat just keeps rising and rising and rising. Then as the subcooler temperature starts coming back up and it wants to kick on that solenoid, now you potentially have this huge-ass electronic expansion valve that's wide-ass open and now going to start beating the shit out of your, your, your last stage head and then killing, killing your, uh, kill, killing your valve plate. Those are wired. If that's a blue store, those are wired wrong. So when they did those upgrades, part of the whole upgrade was you were supposed to, there was supposed to be one solenoid for the subcooler mm -hmm. and then they were supposed to, that was supposed to be an enable. And then there was supposed to be another relay. that was a dry contact. Mm -hmm. Well, the, the, the spoiling controller. So that it was supposed to shut the spoiling controller down on temperature. Not that. Correct. But, the issue is with that is what everybody misses with this is the EPR setting. So if you look at the RS schedule and it's calling for a 35 degree evaporator for the subcooler and part of that whole deal is they upgrade a lot of subcoolers in stores, they put more efficient ones in. Okay, well now you have a, a subcooler that needs a 45 degree evaporator to maintain 50 degree liquid. Raise plate heat exchangers are far more efficient than they were 20 years ago. And now with that sense, like they're, they're way more efficient. Remember when they're, they're not loaded hundred percent. When you have a rack manufacturer sizing everything for hundred percent runtime or load on that, on that rack, and they're only at like 70 or 80, you gotta remember your real load is probably closer to 50 most of the time. So that braised plate heat exchanger has now become more efficient. So in order to combat this from shutting on and off, you need to raise the EPR up. Like especially with, with blended refrigerants, like 448, if I'm running 50 degree liquid, generally I'm in the 87 pound range. Like it, it's, I'm almost at a 50 degree evaporator. Like it, it's close to like a, a few degree TD with the glide. Same thing with 407. It, it's, it's not as efficient, but like you're in the same ballpark you got to raise that epr way up you want that subcooler to run a hundred percent and only control superheat the epr needs to control your actual liquid temperature going out to the to the to the cases so do you do the same thing that i do basically have it at your midpoint so if you're if you're tepid ticket oh my god i just can't talk if you're trying to control 50 degrees and you are typically on a non-glided refrigerant, you'd have that, that thing rolling at around 40 degrees saturated, right? If you're dealing with a glided refrigerant, you want to make sure your EPR set point that it would theoretically be at would be at your midpoint. So if you're 40 degrees for your, for your vapor, but yet 30 degrees for your liquid saturated at that, that particular pressure. That's essentially being at a 35 degree saturated, which would be good for trying to control like a 45 degree outlet on your subcooler. So just take that in, 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 into effect when you're trying to 
set those up. And I know we've talked about this before, like when setting up EPRs, you want to use midpoint. When setting up your, your rack suction, you want to use midpoint. If you're just usually trying to measure superheat, just go off of what the dew point is. But that's a, that's a surefire way just to make sure that you're not going to run too far down where that, that liquid line solenoid is not going to shut that off because a rack likes running steady, right? We don't want to like just keep shutting shit off and on, off and on. So recommended to make sure that that subcooler solenoid is running all the time. We, we don't want it satisfying. We want to keep cool vapor entering those compressors all the time. And on those compound compressors, we, yes, we also, not only are we utilizing vapor injection, but we are also utilizing the liquid injection as well. Yeah, which I honestly think all compression should have both. And for both and i think they should all have both because a if that subcooler shuts down or something happens to it you still have that liquid injection and then b i mean it's a temperature protection for the compressor i mean most compressor was was culpable saying like the majority of compressor deaths are from overheating probably oh probably yeah so i mean if you can prevent that by throwing a Y1037 valve or demand cooling on there just as a backup, I mean, you're saving, saving a compressor. You're saving the oil. You're saving all the debris that's going to be in the rack. So that's my personal opinion. You should have both. I mean, 448 and 449, it seems like they are, especially in the scrolls. They're putting DT, the DTC valves on there too. So they have that specialized T that you have to get from Copeland, where one side of it's the vapor injection, one side of it's the DTC valve. So with those, now the DTC valves, obviously you guys got to get those from, from Copeland. That's, that's a Copeland thing. I'm not sure what Bitzer does for scrolls. I've honestly never seen a Bitzer refrigeration scroll. I've seen them on the Addison units. I mean, they're, they're running air conditioning, so. Yeah, it's the same thing. I guess you want to think. I've never seen a Bitzer refrigeration scroll, if that makes any sense. Yeah. I mean, seen plenty of recips. Like Bitzer now has their, their, they call it the BMT module, which is replacing everything. So that's what they're using for their liquid injection. It's like a pulse solenoid. Yes. Yes. Wow. There's, there's a whole kit that you can actually buy that you can give it your discharge pressure transducer, the suction pressure transducer, everything is being well, controlled by that one module. That's not that one. That That's, that's their. Their compressor smart kit, like the BMT module is literally looks like a two and a half inch by two and a half inch display. Just got the discharge temperature on there. It's got an alarm circuit and a liquid injection and okay. a discharge sensor. That it's, it's for their like standalone stuff. What you're talking about is the, the new compressor controller, which everything should have that. But the BMT modules, I will say this guys for the bits or stuff, make sure you have the right orifice. Damn right. Well, they're, they're, they, every compressor has a different orifice they sell, and it injects right into the crankcase. So if you have the wrong orifice in there, it will flood the living shit out of the compressor. Well, it's essentially the same thing as using a, a Y1037 valve that's rapidly oversized, right? Correct. Correct. Well, and here's the thing, like, because we had this happen, the orifice got lost. It's eighth inch by three eighths. So one of the guys went and got an eighth inch by three eighths adapter, mm -hmm. all piped a flare, stuck it in there. And of course, 
it flooded back like a banshee because that electronic expansion valve has no orifice in it. It's just, it's just a decently as small as they can get, but like it's a big expansion valve. Well, the orifice has it in the, there's like a snubber screen inside that fitting, mm-hmm. which is what you need to watch out for. And also make sure they're clamped because they snap off if they're not clamped. Yeah. Well, I mean, just put in perspective, guys, like, so on a, on a compound, compound Carlisle compressor, those valves that are, that are feeding liquid into there, it's it's a one ton typically. So it wouldn't take much more by putting one little upsized orifice where before you're just overtaking the thing and not, not allowing that, that liquid to, to boil off. And it does, it, it does definitely increase the longevity of the compressors. Like when I first started working for a company a long time ago. We, they had a whole bunch of compressors that were paint boiling off, off, off of them. They're changing out two or three compressors a year per store. That went down significantly after we got all the subcoolers up and running. So the other thing with the, with the Y10 valves. Now, I'm a big proponent. And like, I see a lot of like, bits are the same way. Like, they'll send out, like, they'll say like a, a 225 or like it's a two. Is it a 220 or is it a? For the, the Y valve, it's it's, it's it's 190, 210, and 230 typically. Like I see a lot of 230 valves. Okay, I want nothing to do with a 230 valve. Like I, me personally, if I'm replacing it, I'm probably putting a 195 in. 190. They don't make 195. 190. Like I, I'm putting in the lo- the lower one. Also, with those valves, you, you can, I don't think you can replace the orifice in the inside of those. You can. You can. Okay. So on the Y1037, you can replace the orifice. My bad. And then you could also replace the power head, which is really, really awesome because if someone, whoever installed it, didn't make sure that their, that valve bulb did not have any vibration or it rubbed up against something, if that valve breaks, theoretically, you'd have to yank that one out and weld in a new one. Well, thank God it's exactly a regular conventional power head where you can undo it and then put on a new one yeah the orifice all you need is a three eighths or it's a five sixteenth nut driver okay and you can just unscrew it like that valve is super simple it is literally a piston or an or or a needle a seat and the power head yeah it's it's actually an f it's an f expansion valve so if, if you look at the actual model number for that whole valve it'll say fv so f stands for the body style of the valve v in, in Sporlin terms, it stands for R22. Then the next number that you'll see will be the size of the valve. So like on the compound compressors, it'll be FV-1 and then dash. And then the next number will be either the 190, 210 or 230, which is telling you the temperature at which it's trying to control off the discharge line. Also make sure those bastards are wrapped on the bulbs or any sensor or anything that's controlling any t- type of liquid injection. Make sure it's wrapped because you'll be like me and look like an asshole because didn't read the directions. So I didn't, so I'm being a manly man. And, and so then I find out that it wasn't working because of that. And so, also when it's tied to the pipe, stainless zip ties or TXV ball straps. 100%. The TXV ball straps are better because you get a better, you get more surface area on there with the copper. So you want to use that. The reason I use the lower liquid injection temperatures is. Because, I mean, a lot of these ones that are like the 230, I mean, that, that compressor could be running 210 degrees. It's hot. It's, it's overheating oil. So 
injecting liquid at 190 degrees, you're not using that much more capacity to do it. But at the same time, that compressor is running cooler and you're keeping it out of that danger zone. Every manufacturer has a danger zone. I don't like seeing compressors over 210 degrees at six inches from the compressor. That's usually when, when you start getting to that danger zone. When you get to 230, you're breaking down oil. And usually they're overheating. I don't want to see them a, a good compressor over 190, which I mean, obviously with these new glides and we're running 448, we're running higher compressor ratios, you're going to get that high. There, there's, there's pretty much no way around it, even with vapor injection or liquid injection, you're still going to get that high. So that's where like keeping your superheats down at the rack is imperative. You don't want to be running high superheats. You want to keep that post defrost. If you're using hot gas, you want to use that, that keep that post defrost hot gas from overheating stuff. I've seen that be wreak havoc on racks and guys, they have demand cooling issues or like rack overheating issues. And it's post defrost when for 10, 15 minutes, the, the, the vapor coming back from that circuit that, that's coming on a defrost is a hundred, 200 degrees. And it's just overheating the suction and overheats that compressor. So I'm going to make a statement because like I've had people call me up on the phone and we're like, Hey, I, I got my liquid injection line is flooding back. I've never, never had a liquid injection line flood back because most of the time there, there's some sort of regulator. So if you have the option of between your vapor injection, and your liquid injection flooding back, not saying that it can't happen, but I don't think. If you had a hundred instances, it's usually going to be the, the vapor injection somehow is flooding back because it's getting a shitty super heat reading. Same thing with the DTC valves on the scrolls. Those typically on the newer ones, they have a, a bulb that actually goes in the top of the head of the compressor. If you're replacing a compressor, do not grab that with a channel box. I've seen on multiple occasions where someone couldn't get the, get it out easily enough. And what they do, they squeezed it with a channel locks, which essentially is putting more pressure on the, on the bulb, which is putting more, more pressure against the spring and essentially causing that thing to feed nonstop, even when it doesn't need to. So I, I just tap them on the edges of the DTC valve, the, the, st the stem, I just kind of tap it with a pair of channel locks on the edges, kind of try to loosen it up and then PB blaster loaded, loaded up a PB blaster and start pushing on it. And that oil, once it gets down underneath, will push the bulb out. If you load up enough PB blaster in there, it, it, it'll, it'll push the bulb out for you. But like that, that's the easy way to get those out. I mean, but you're going to frost on those liquid injection lines. You're, you're going to, I mean, especially if you're dumping oh, yeah. it. I mean, it's, it's injecting say 95, hundred degree liquid into like a plus 24 degree suction header or a, a minus 10 degree suction header, it's going to frost. It's below dew point. It's going to, it's, it's going to, it's going to condensate and frost. Now vapor injection. Oh, hell yeah. You could flood back. I know you've, you've probably seen it before. Like I've seen vapor injection compressors flood back so hard. This is scrolls. They sound like weed whackers. Like you'll, go, you'll go there and the whole rack just sounds like a pissed off weed whacker. I've seen the oil separator frost. Straight up frost. And someone, cause they're like, someone called me up. They're like, yeah, the, 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 there's a, a, a liquid injection line. I was like, no, it's vapor injection. He was like, well, how do you know? I was like, read, read me off the model number of the compressor. And sure as shit. Cause I was like, 
what what are your numbers? Give me some numbers. He's like, oh, well, I got this much temperature on the suction. He had like 30 degrees of superheat on the suction, but his discharge line temperature was 70 degrees on a running compressor. So no bueno. Yeah. Telltale store, like at the, at the, the bullseye store, common call. You get a guy go there for an oil failure. It's cooler out. Didn't really find much. You know, then the next guy goes there for an oil failure and they all start looking at the temp, right? And like pretty much you can nail it on the head. The first thing I'm looking for, like those bullseye stores at that, I'm checking the, I'm checking the discharge temp, the rack. Yeah. You know, I see the rack discharge temp is low. If it's below 130 degrees, 120 degrees, especially if it's warm out, you're flooding back down the vapor injection or you have massive like liquid flood back down the suction. But if the suction looks good, it's probably coming down the vapor line. And generally it's a bad sensor on a, on a subcooler controller or it's something else. Like somebody changed the sensor or changed the transistor type and never changed it in the controller. That's a common one. Oh, don't be fooled by the Sporland sub cool and superheat controllers. They have an adjustment in there, whether it's looking at atmospheric or gauge pressure. Oh yeah. Wow. Oh yeah. I, 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 cha- I, I don't like to admit this, but I, I changed that controller. Cause like, no matter what I did, um, I was, um, uh, I was getting the right voltage coming back from the pressure transducer. I did all that math. I'm like, why is this reading wrong? Why is this reading wrong? And I put the new controller in and I'm going through all the settings and as I'm going through all the settings, I'm like. That truck stop part. <laughs> that was your ass part. Well, I mean, that's, that's what it's, that's what it was used for after that. But yeah, I'm just, I'm, I'm, and I'm, I'm not infallible. I mean, I, I, I screw up and I, and I probably spent a good 25, 30 minutes diagnosing this thing, like making sure there was no shorts in the wire, making sure there was no weird resistances, made sure the pressure transducer was shitting out the right voltage that it should have been at that pressure. I went the whole night. I'm like, well, it must be the control. Well, yeah, it was that asshole. Cause I didn't have it programmed right. But I was like, all right, this, this controller has been in this rack since 2005. Like, why all of a sudden would it be reading wrong now? Well, because it's been reading wrong forever, apparently. Yep. yep. So it's a, it's a weird thing with those, like those scroll racks. So like when they, when they start flooding back that bad and you start loading up the oil separator full of liquid refrigerant. Mm-hmm. In these oil failures, because what happens is those OMBs don't care if it's liquid refrigerant, water, oil, they don't care. But here's the thing. Liquid refrigerant flows way slower through that orifice in that, in that oil feed valve, and it causes it to flash off mm-hmm. because it's feeding liquid through there, not oil. Oil doesn't flash off. So it's causing, it's causing that refrigeration effect inside the crankcase of the compressor but at the same time, it's also not filling up the compressor fast enough. So that's where you get the random oil failures. You'll get there and there's nothing locked out. And you'll see that the OMB resets five times on its own before it hard locks out. That's where you get these random oil failures and proof failures because you're flooding back so bad. It's not filling up the compressor fast enough mm-hmm. for it to lock out. Yeah, 100%. So that, that's why that happens. All right, guys, I think that's going to be it for uh, liquid and vapor injection. Thanks for listening. See you next time.